Off the beaten path near Midway, Kentucky, outside of Versailles, there's a gem of a place to eat. In fact, it's my favorite place to eat in all of Kentucky, would you imagine? You would never guess that the world's greatest big brown burger is served at Wallace Station. Guy Fieri says it's the best sandwich in Kentucky, and I think he's right. I've driven down there again. If I get near it, I want an excuse to be around it at mealtime or not, just to stop in and get another big brown burger. It's really good. The first time we went, a host took us there and said, hey, I want to introduce you to this place. And we walked in, and he turned around to me, and he said this, don't you love the charm in this place? At that moment, I was observing how old the place was, how run down it looked, and I was wondering what he understood about the term charm as he described what was going on. That was before I took that first bite out of the sandwich. It's so good. Now it's my favorite place to eat in all of Kentucky. Wallace Station, you got to try it. The book of Obadiah in the Bible in this treasure of the library of scripture, is like Wallace Station for lunch. Many of us have never heard of it. Several can't find it. It's in the white pages of the Old Testament. In fact, this morning, um, you may have to dive into the index of your Bible to get there. It's, uh, it's a wonderful book. And it's a book that will feed our hearts this morning. It's a hidden gem a prophetic word to Esau's people in the middle of this series on Esau. How could we not come to Obadiah? So come there with me this morning. It's right next to Amos. If that doesn't help you, then uh, hit that index and get there. We are unconscious to our need of this great book. Consider life with me this morning through the book of Obadiah. Consider God this morning with me through this great book, and let's lay out our hearts under the light of the Word of God. Now, Obadiah is written after the people of God are exiled to Babylon, and they're hurting on many fronts about what's going on in the world. The people of God are hurting. So God sends Obadiah, the prophet, to speak to them. You remember, eons ago, God called Abraham to birth the nation of Israel through which he would reveal himself to the world. They ran out of food, went down to Egypt, were there for 400 years. Moses brings them to Sinai. They get the law of God they march right up to the land of promise that God had promised Abraham. And they balk. No, we can't go in there. They, they, those people are really big. So they march around for 40 years and bury that generation. A new generation emerges. Joshua takes them in the land. They have the conquest. Go through that turbulent time of the judges. They start with King Saul. Get on with David in a high mark of their history. Solomon follows him, and the kingdom is divided. Assyria, seven centuries before Jesus come, 
comes down and carries off the north and intermingles with intermarriage and we have the Samaritans who are despised by the purebred Jews. Then Judah disobeys God and as promised in Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. They're carried off by Babylon. While they're being carried off, Edom is over there singing from Mount Seir. Na, 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 na. Hey, hey, good. They're loving the fact that Babylon's taken them down. In fact, they loved it so much they came over and they started looting the homes in Judah. Uh, more than that, some people from Judah were running away. And here's their cousin, Esau's people, reds them all up and hands them over to Babylon, jeering them all the while. Wow, that's, that's a mess. They were feeling awful. And God sends a guy named Obadiah. A servant of the Lord. That's, that's all we know about his name. We don't know where he came from. We don't know anything about him. He shows up and gives us these 21 verses. Now, he's one of the minor prophets. Now, that's an English term given to the books toward the end of the Old Testament that are really small in length. They're only minor in length. He carries a major punch. Let me read it to you. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Remember, Edom is Esau's people. It means red. Remember, he ate the red stew, lost his birthright? Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If great gatherers came to you, would you not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, speaking as it were to a mountain, a geographic area in, around Mount Seir where Esau's people live. Back into verse 9, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On that day, that day that you stood aloof, on that day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat. 
over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall uh, possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. Those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of, ne of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, I want to go three different directions this morning. First, I want to survey the book with two observations. Secondly, I want to look at the lie. Remember, Esau's life was bound up in lies that he believed that did not serve him well, neither will they serve us well. The lie this morning is, the rich in spirit conquer the day. The proud, the arrogant, they're the ones who are victorious. Okay, come before us to Obadiah if you believe that lie. Finally, there are three questions that this book asks us that we need to consider this morning. They will be driven right to the interior recesses of our heart. Number one, Obadiah, this is... The minor book with a major message. Let's make two observations. Observation number one, Obadiah prophesied the ultimate doom of Esau's people. Look at verse 18. The house, there, will be, there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. The ultimate demise of Esau's people is described. Esau's people would go along in history till about 300 years before Jesus came. Then a group called the Nabataeans took over the kingdom of Edom, and whatever was left of Esau's people were kind of folded into the Nabataean Empire, 300 B.C. What we draw from this is this simple truth but it's important to understand, and it's this. The day comes when God will judge everyone. 
They went on for years and years and years, hundreds of years, thousands of years. But there came a day when God faced them. The author of the book of Hebrews is looking at this in Hebrews 9.27 when he says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. Now what's glorious about the good news announcement about Jesus Christ is that God sent his son so that the judgment due us because of our sin would fall on Jesus. So that Friday was really good Friday in that our hell fell on Jesus so that in repenting of our sin and believing in Jesus, his righteousness could be imputed to our account. So that when God looked at us after we received Christ as our Savior, he doesn't see our sin. And all of us are sinful in thought, in word or deed. All of us have broken the law of God. We stand condemned before a God who is holy. But he offered his son Jesus for us. And he offers to give us the gift of righteousness if we would but receive Christ as our Savior. And then he raised him up from the dead, proving that he was God and that he could deliver on the promise of eternal life. What an announcement is the gospel. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you know Christ? What a wonderful way to begin October. Receiving Christ as your Savior. Do you know him this morning? He's reaching for you through the book of Obadiah. We either face God as our judge and stand guilty before him as a result of our sin, or we face God as our father who offered his son so that we could be forgiven. And in being forgiven, we are part of his family. Do you know Christ as your Savior? Obadiah prophesied the ultimate doom of Esau's people. God is not first given to judge. You need to understand that. You say, oh, yeah, this book is about the hammer. God brings the hammer. I don't like that part of God. By the way, I love that part of God. What is the right response to evil? You know what it is? It's holy vengeance. I want God to put evil down. I hate evil. And even as I say that, I recognize the presence of indwelling sin in my own life. And it brings me again and again and again to repentance. It's not God's will that any should perish, but that all men should come to repentance. I'm calling you this morning to repent. Now, Edom's second observation in this book, 21 verses, Edom left behind the relics of pride and the absence of brotherly love. Look at verses 3 and 4. They had these defenses that they felt like were impregnable. They carved out habitations in the rock. It was hard to get to the capital city of Mount Seir. But once you got there, you found that they had made their homes in the rocks and high places. And so it was like they made nests there. And they were sitting up there, hey, you can't get us. We're up here. Do what you want. And they felt like the place that they were living in would never be overthrown. Enter the Nabataeans in 300 B.C. Look at verses 10 through 14. This is the nasty part of relating to their brother Jacob. Remember, Esau and Jacob are from the same womb. 
in the day of Judah's calamity, what do we get from them? Jeering, looting. Ezekiel chapter 35 uses this phrase. It's amazing. You cherished perpetual enmity with your brother, Jacob. By the way, what do we cherish in life? You know what Esau's people cherished? Acrimony with Jacob's people. They cherished it. They fondled it. They worked on it. They practiced it. What do we cherish? And what does what we cherish say about our hearts? You say, Erica, as you study the civilization of Edom, Esau's people, what do they cherish? According to Ezekiel, they cherish ongoing conflict with their brother. Do you cherish conflict? Do you cherish? Are you nursing anything along in your own heart that God is putting his arm around you this morning saying, ought you really cherish that? How about cherishing me and the virtues of Christ above everything God says to us? Remember, while they cherished enmity with their brother Jacob, the qualifications for pastoral office in 1 Timothy chapter 3 are designed to give a picture of maturity to which everyone is to aspire. Remember 1 Timothy 3.3? One of the things that a church officer is to model is he is not to be, here's the term, quarrelsome. Are you quarrelsome? Are you a battle axe? Esau was a battle axe against Jacob all the time. That's a far cry from loving the Lord with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. At the core of Christianity is love of neighbor. At the core of too much evangelical faith in America is fighting, conflict. In the name, of course, orthodoxy and keeping everything right. I ran across a story this week. Fascinating. I believe Adam actually lived as the first human and is the progenitor of the human race. That's a piece of history. The guy wrote a book, and he said in the book that Adam, in the literature of the Bible, has a mythological literary purpose. That is, his life and his lineage, and we're all Adam's children. Remember Romans 5, as sin entered through one man, and in Adam passed upon all of us. And so death came and reigned. But in Christ, and those who know Christ and are related to him through repentance and faith, life comes and forgiveness uh, so that, that, that Adam, a guy published a book and said that Adam is, uh, has a mythological character in the literature. That is, he has a literary purpose throughout the Bible. He's also an actual person who lived in history. Well, as soon as he published that, then in God's good family, everybody starts fighting with each other who are trying to keep track of ideas. Ah, gotcha. That's awful. You said Adam's. Adam's mythological 
He's not real. And so you're a heretic. And um, so a guy decided, you know what, I ought to, he, he's an Augustine scholar and he's a thoughtful guy and he has a YouTube channel. So he, he decided, well, I'll, I'll, I'll respond to that. And he said, look, it is possible to posit that Adam is both a real person and in the literature of the Bible has a literary purpose that follows him all the way through Scripture. And that he has, in, in literary terms, a mythological meaning in that he's the federal head of a whole race of people that are doomed to hell were it not for the gospel. So he, he gives this little 15-minute explanation. Well, now... Um, some of us in a former generation listened to the Haven of Rest radio broadcast, a quartet that it's kind of a devotional half hour, and you'd listen to the quartet sing, and a guy would give a devotional in between the songs. His name was Ray Ortlund, senior. And he was thoughtful and had a really great voice from our Lord, and it was pleasant to listen to. And um, he had a son, his name, Ray Ortlund Jr. Ray Ortlund Jr. had three sons, Gavin, Dane, one of which we'll look at this book deeper on Wednesday mornings, and Eric. Well, one of these sons, Gavin, opens up his YouTube channel and responds to this, this skirmish going on and says, you know, hey, for a person to say Adam has a mythological, uh, literary, ongoing uh, meaning in Scripture is not the same as saying Adam never lived. There's another category. Adam can be a real person and both have literary value in Scripture all the way through and cast as the head of the human race along shadow. So he gives a 15-minute diatribe on this, and um, immediately they fire up to attack this guy. But the problem was there's three Ortlands out there, and the people that, you know, weren't alert to whose YouTube channel this was just assumed that it was his brother. So they start running after his brother, just throwing rocks and beating up. And so then it's like, dude, if you're going to hate, hate in the right kind of way, you're hating the wrong brother. Now, that long story is simply an illustration of where we are right now in brotherliness. You know what it feels like? It feels a lot like Esau and Jacob. It doesn't feel like John 13. This is how everybody's going to know you're my disciples. You have love for one another. I'm not saying we ought not stand up for the truth. We're not in Jude. When we get to Jude in verse 4, we need to earnestly contend for the faith once and for all delivered. But while we look at the gospel, we've got to make sure we're not just clubbing each other in, in the head just for kicks and giggles. That's a part of the message of the book of Obadiah at the core of Christianity. So here you have Edom, who's known for three things. Pride, notice how it deceives them, verse 3. Number two, they're known for looting their brother. He talks about that in verses 10 through 14. And finally, they're known for being utterly gone. Look at verse 18. There shall be no survivor for the house of Edom. Wow. All right, let's face the lie. The rich in spirit conquer each day. Pride leads us, let's, let's think of this. Pride leads us to build on an insecure foundation. They had lofty visions of their own grandeur, and it led to their demise. It's like Narcissus. Remember, he loved how he looked, the Greek myth. Uh, 
he looked into the water and he saw his reflection. He thought, wow, that guy's really good looking. And he just stared at it, enamored with himself. And the more he looked, he fell in the water and that was it for him. And so the Greeks would tell this mythical story as a way of arguing against pride and its destructive ways in our life. Eden loved itself. Now, there were three sources of pride. First was its defenses. You couldn't get into Edom unless you passed through what's called the Seek. I'll show you two pictures of it. It's really cool. How many of you have been to Petra before? Anybody? Yeah, several of you. Yeah, it's, it's the coolest place. Uh, now, I thought it was a lot longer. I, I was reading this morning just to check up. It's only 160 meters longer. It seemed to me it took longer to get down there. It's uh, 160 meters long. It's between three meters, that would be about nine feet, and nine meters wide, and it's 80 meters tall. In fact, I have this picture. If you look, no, first picture, please. If you look at the top, right in the middle of the crack, uh, you can see the sky. So it's just, it's, it's, it's kind of like, uh, if you've ever been to Zion National Park, it's kind of like that. You know, the walls just go way, way up. Then when you get to the end of the Sikh, uh, it is called, uh, it breaks out into this temple, there, there, and that's the end of it right there. It narrows down at the end. But what it meant is if you're going to get there to those people, you've got to go down the seat. Well, it made it so you get 12 archers standing in, in locations in the seat. You can hold off a whole army because you couldn't get through because they, they're just like easy pickings like those A-10 aircrafts in Gulf War I as uh, Iraq was retreating. It was just like fish in a barrel. It was really easy. So they said, hey, you know what? Bring it on. Nobody can get us. We are impregnable. By the way, beware of the nation that trusts in its military industrial hardware as their source of security. Now, does that mean America ought not have a strong defense? Absolutely not. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That's all I'm saying. And I love a strong military. Some of you have given your time in it, for which I am grateful but that's different in celebrating that. Now, the other thing they, they trusted in was strong allies. And, and how'd that work for them? Look at verse 7. All your allies have driven you to your border. They were counting on that. You're going to protect us, right? <laughs> they just pushed them out of their own ground. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They signed all these agreements. They just turned agreements over. Because they were saying, hey, we got NATO. Yes, we do. We got NATO. How about you? You know, you can't touch us. We're good. We got these great alliances. Well, in their day of trauma, they all evaporated. And that was a false thing to trust in. Finally, they trusted in their wisdom. Hey, we're the wise guys. We can figure it out. We're smart. Really? Verse 8, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom? An understanding out of Mount Seir. You think you're wise? Oh, really? And then what, it, what God does often, ironically, is have really stupid people overcome the wise empires. Now, pride leads and is a prelude to disaster. Think of Peter when he says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and let him exalt you in due time. Think of Jesus who said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Not the large in spirit. Not the one who walks around like he has the world on a string and the world by the throat. The powerful, the prideful. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what the kingdom's like, he says. It's a guy got a rebuilt muscle car. I don't know if he did it himself or, or if he paid a lot of money to have it done. He decided to drive it to work one day, and he was in an industry, and they all let out. You know, the whistle blew, and they all let out at the same time. They were all driving out of the parking lot, and these four guys had uh, rode to work together, and they rolled their windows down. They started yelling at the guy, hey, hey, and finally got up next to him and said, man, that car looks really great. And he's bragging on the car. He's never had a better drive out of the parking lot. Never. He's just all captured by these guys breaking on. You know, he's just so proud of that car. And what he didn't notice was the car in front of him had stopped suddenly. And he's bragging about how great this car is. And with those four guys right there, you know, just crashes right into the back of the car. Wrongly, but to the great delight of those four guys in the car who couldn't stop laughing at the fortune of this guy who took so much pride in his car, the front end of which just went off. You see, Eric, what, what, you know what? That's a metaphor for life. Um, that's how it works. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. By the way, how is disaster for a nation measured? How about verse 16? It's amazing. They shall be as those who never had been. Wow. Wow. Three questions this great book asks us this morning. Number one, the Spirit of God is asking, am I my brother and sister's keeper? Jay read Genesis 4. Cynically, Cain asked God, hey, wait, what do you mean, where's Cain? Am I supposed to be responsible for Cain's care? Am I my brother's keeper? He thought, oh, I'll, I'll push God off with that. Wrong plan. Because the answer to his cynical rhetorical question is absolutely yes. We share a common humanity we are made in God's image, and we are to watch out for each other and be good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. You know, there's a fascinating verse in Deuteronomy. I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there. Here's Moses' instruction to Israel in relation to Esau's people. 2, 4, and 5. You're about to pass through the territory of your brother's people of Esau who live in Seir and they will be afraid of you so be very careful do not contend with them for I will not give you any of their land no not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession you, you shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink for the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. What does he tell them? You know what God tells Israel? You treat your brother Esau right. Would that Esau would have read that verse and obeyed it. It would have been a lot better for Israel. Obadiah verse 10, verse 13. Looting, violence, 
Lamentations 4.21, in the funeral for Jerusalem, one of the things that Jeremiah laments, he says, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom. What he's saying is, I see you rejoicing and being glad, you who dwell in the land of us, but to you also the cup shall pass, and you shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. You're going to face the devastation that they faced. It's interesting that gospel faithfulness in 1 Timothy is framed as taking care of each other. If a man does not provide for his own, he's worse than an infidel. He's worse than a man who doesn't believe because what is characteristic of a man who believes is he takes care of others. Nihas, in commenting on this book, said, much of the failure in society today has its source in the loss of a sense of kinship. Let's take just a little sampling, a little sampling. Congress right now. Do you have a sense of deep levels of kinship that are inhabiting the halls of Congress? The great sin of Edom was unbrotherliness. In the day that their brother faced calamity, they didn't care. In the day their brother faced calamity, they were over there looting their brother's house. In the day their brother faced calamity and was carried off and some of them escaped, they grabbed the escapees and gave them back. What kind of a brother's that? Not a good one. I love, again, this morning, I want to mention the COVID stories I'm hearing about how we are helping each other through quarantine and infection, meals and love and errands and prayer. You can keep praying for Aunt Sarah Landham, who's in the hospital at UC. need to get her out. The insurance world controls everything. need to find acute care her to get involved in the world teaches us to look out for number one get what you can loot pillage get some am I my brothers and sisters keeper by the way is God making you sensitive now in this moment to anyone that you can help second question how much of the way the world works has seeped into my heart all that is in the world first John 2 16 the lust of the flesh the lust of the eye the boastful pride of life how much of that is characteristic of our living you say Eric I don't understand what makes the world go round. I'll tell you what makes the world go round substantially pride and the use of power to aggrandize oneself toward others Difficult to overstate how much pride explains what's going on in the world. There's a way of the kingdom, and then there's a way that this world works, and they're different. Remember, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, John 18, 36. This week of all things, I thought of that rhythm and blues band, uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, that had a great song, uh, fascinating rhythmic patterns, words are trash, because the way the world is trash. Uh, it was a song called, That's the Way of the World. And there is a way that the world works. How much of the way the world works is in your heart, is in mine. 
And have we divested our heart of the ways of the world? One of them is this boastful pride of life. Pride presents itself in a million different ways. Are you proud? Am I proud? Did you note the word? Pride is deceitful. It twists us. We, we can't even see it. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You can be proud and unaware of it. At times, the proud are the last in the room to understand what everybody has a very clear understanding of, and that's your pride and mine. How much of the way of the world has seeped into our heart finally? Do I have the sweet rest in Almighty God's rule over the nations of the earth? Look at verse 21. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. And the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The way this book ends is extraordinary. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. It very well could be that John, the follower of Jesus, in writing Revelation eleven fifteen, and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That line that Handel picks up for the Handel's Messiah, of course, and he shall reign forever and ever. That could have its origin in the end of the book of Obadiah, who argues... This is going to end well. Evil's not going to win or get away. God has seen every dastardly thing that has gone on. And he's coming to even the score. And when he comes, there will be his kingdom everywhere. Or the way Paul described it, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. The way John describes it, every kingdom on the earth will yield and be given up to the kingdom of our Lord and the kingdom of his Christ. And he shall reign. And he's reigning this morning in heaven over his people. And he's coming to make that self-evident rule over all the earth. He's reigning over all the earth now, substantially unrecognized by the seven plus billion people that live in the world. You say, Eric, the news cycles must have been pretty bad in this day. You know, they really were. They'd get on the internet and read news. They'd read, Edom, a pack of Edomites were in Jerusalem and looted every house on Park Avenue last night. They said, oh, that's terrible. They'd read another story. A marauding, marauding bunch of Edomites laid hold of some people who had escaped Babylon and its siege on Jerusalem and got them way out in the wilderness and brought them and said, hey, Babylon, we, we got some people who are runners. We got some runners. You, you have them back. That dastardly deed went down. You say, oh, that's, that's, that's terrible. And, and they, they were reading about the Academy Awards for Pride and all the bragging that they did. Hey, we're perched up here in these houses, cut in the rock, you can't touch us. You can't touch us. And they were disturbed. And the people of God got discouraged. So God sent a no-name, two-bit guy that nobody knows anything about, Obadiah. And he came and said, God has seen everything. And here's what's going to take place. You watch. Edom will come to an end. Edom, are you kidding? They've been around for millennia. You, 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 they're going to come to an end? Nobody would have bet on that. 
I mean, where they live, it's impregnable. You can't even get in there. How's that going to take place? No, Obadiah says, you watch. You watch God work. And he is going to vindicate the honor of everyone who's trusted in him. Now, I've run into more people who are disturbed about this moment and who's not disturbed about this moment. You read the news, you watch the videos. I mean, Afghanistan was an unmitigated disaster, was it not? Uh, we're entertaining legislation now, this week, the month of October, we are told now, that could substantially change how we understand America and how our economy works. That's trouble. Um, Progressivism is unraveling the fabric of our republic. We've seen what socialistic theory has done before. The end is not good. This is not a political speech. This is about people are tormented by this stuff. Globally, Afghanistan, North Korea, just for kicks and giggles, firing off some more long-range missiles. It's not good. China, how many more months till they invoke their right to have Taiwan, you know? Gospel Christians in America are concerned about Congress, the president, police, the law. But I'm finding some of them are wringing their hands, not sleeping, and their mental health is going right in a ditch. You know what? kingdom shall be the Lord's. God sent Obadiah to change the emotional calculus of the people of God in the 5th century B.C. And they weren't doing very well. And this book speaks across time into our age. You say, Eric, well, how are we supposed to live? You get up humming the Hallelujah Chorus before you go to breakfast. You get up thinking about Revelation eleven fifteen, and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. You get in a shower. And he shall reign forever and ever. You can sing away in the shower. Nobody's hearing. Even if it's bad, you, nobody, nobody cares. Unless you're watched asleep in the next room, you know, then just sing quietly. You finish your morning duties and you sit down at lunch and you say, Lord, Jesus is king. And I can't wait till the whole earth recognize what, by your grace, you've helped me recognize already. Then you finish your afternoon, you go to dinner, and you say, Jesus is king. And you enjoy the evening, notwithstanding whatever you heard about what's going on that day in the world, and you say, Jesus is king, Jesus is coming. And you say, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And you let that be the governor on your emotional health and how you think about what's going on. Does that mean we capitulate, succumb, or disengage? No, I'm not saying that at all. But it's amazing what is monopolizing a lot of Christians, gospel Christian spirit in America in this moment. Our king reigns this morning, right now. Our king is coming this morning right now and therefore while we wait we can have peace not in the circumstances of this interim period that awaits him being revealed but we can have peace in the reality that it will be 
and all these lesser things will be resolved. Amen? Father, forge into our hearts even a joy and a hope that defies news lines that can lay hold of our spirit and smother our joy. Grant, Lord, that we would be humble followers of Jesus Christ. And because his spirit lives within us, be joyful and persevering and gentle and truthful and bold and courageous and loving and kind. What do you need to say to the Lord this morning? And what is he asking you to do? Has God brought you here this morning to settle your relationship with him? Is your need to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, to give up on your attempts in self-righteousness to be accepted? and receive the gift of his righteousness in repentance and faith. Are you at perpetual enmity with your spouse? Somebody in your family? Somebody at work? It's not one of the virtues that Christ is calling us to. Are you proud? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What do you need to say to God right now in this moment of prayer? I want you to pray. Father, I thank you that Jesus lives, our resurrected Lord. Oh, Father, I thank you that all authority and power has been given unto him. All the authority of Congress, all the authority of any governance, the governance of the nations of the world has been given to Jesus. I thank you that heaven, in heaven, nobody's wringing their hands. They're excited about the revelation coming of Jesus Christ to all. Oh, Lord, we trust our King. We look forward to his coming. Lord, wow, are we going to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness and truth will get up and kiss each other every morning? We don't live in such a world. But while we wait, help us be persevering, intrepid followers of Jesus with hearts full of joy and indomitable resolve to go forward for him the way we ought and should. Make us to be such people of hope, I pray in Jesus' name.